This is another MP3 podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle, Australia. Good afternoon. Thank you once again for joining me. Julian Campbell here, and we've got another interesting show lined up for you this week. As usual, a bit later on in the program, we'll have a look at some of those little business tips that will help us to build and grow our business. We're also talking with Brett Gleeson from the Lake Macquarie Business Centre about those stages of the business cycle. But right now, we're going to have a chat with Sonia Anderson, a lawyer with Tranta Lawyers, about mediation in estate planning. Good afternoon, Sonia. Good afternoon, Julian. Thank you once again for joining us. Uh, A few weeks ago we were talking about this rather novel idea of yours for people to have a facilitated mediation before they work out their estate plans. In other words, mediation that involves the children and other beneficiaries before the final legal documents are drawn. Yes, that's right, Julian. And you're right in saying that it is a rather novel idea in terms of how estate planning is usually carried out. Um, what we usually see is the testator or testatrix meeting with his or her lawyer and having the relevant legal documentation drafted in what really amounts to a vacuum. So testator means the person that's uh, uh, drawing up the will? The person who's (laughs) leaving property, that's right. Just have to think of these legal terms sometimes. (laughs) Uh, But don't parents like to keep these matters a secret from their children? Yes, traditionally adult children have usually only become actively involved in their parents' estate plans after their parents' death. Um, This is because culturally most parents don't share their plans with their grown children and I think that that's because they were hoping that by not revealing their intentions and plans they could protect themselves and their children from potential objections or sibling conflicts over their bequests. But time has shown um, that Secrecy does not always protect children and can lead to a state dispute that can sometimes destroy families. And entrenched conflict can also sometimes destroy the gifts or the businesses or the properties that the parents were hoping to leave behind. Okay, so can you give us an example of of a value of pre-estate planning using mediation? Sure. Um, I can recall one example where the father wanted to pass on the family business equally to his two sons who were in it. The sons had worked in the business for seven years and were their father's top two managers. Well, that sounds simple enough. Uh, Would that need uh, pre-planned mediation? Well, the family started working on a typical plan that had majority ownership going to the two sons who worked in the business and would someday run the business together as partners. But work on the plan resulted in many different drafts and included buy-sell agreements, employment contracts, insurance plans and gifting strategies. After 12 months of meeting with the estate planning lawyer, no one felt that progress had been made or that they were any closer to a workable plan because every time the lawyer drafted another plan, one of the family members would decide it was untenable. Each plan generated a new objection that had not been voiced during the discussions leading up to the draft of that plan and eventually, I think in sheer frustration, all work came to a halt. So what was the problem there? Well, the essential problem, uh, as with many estate planning issues of this kind, was that the family meetings with the estate planning lawyer were not designed to evaluate the underlying feasibility of the basic plan. In other words, the family had never really started at square one. They never stepped back to ask themselves what they wanted as individuals, what they wanted as a family, and what was really feasible. So what happened then? Well, to cut a long story short, eventually the parties engaged a mediator. And, and how did this mediator make a difference? Well, the mediator helped the father to see that by transferring stock in the company to his adult children, he was effectively making them de facto business partners, 
even though they had never said unequivocally that they wanted to be business partners or that they could work together well enough to be successful as partners. Mm. So the mediator, who was trained in family dynamics, convinced all of them that it was in their best interest to have the two sons work on a partnership agreement as a way of demonstrating whether or not they would be capable of working as a healthy partner team, and if they could, determining exactly how they would do that. So how did the sons cope with this exercise then? Well, working together with the mediator and without their father, the sons made immediate progress, recognising just how different it would be for them to work together without their father at the helm. Interestingly, though not surprisingly, one son practically begged his father to join them in the meetings and assist them in the process. But that, of course, would have continued the three-way dynamic and defeated the purpose of testing the brothers as a two-man team. So with the help of tests and structured exercises, the sons examined their leadership styles, their personal values, their expectations of one another and the issue of fairness. And although it was a very difficult exercise for them, they developed reasonably good agreements on how they would handle their differences. So then they were able to go ahead with the original estate planning? Well, no, not quite, because what happened was that in a pivotal meeting, quite suddenly the sons mutually decided that regardless of how financially advantageous it might be to continue the business, their interpersonal difficulties made it unlikely that they would ever really enjoy working together or trust one another sufficiently to be partners. So they had been working together, though, as a team with their father as a leader. That's right. But the basic incompatibilities between the two sons did not come to light fully during the seven years they worked together or during the previous meetings with their father's estate planning lawyer. So, so what were the signs that they were incompatible? Well, the two brothers were allowed to split the profits between themselves every year in December, but they had a horrendous time with their accountant agreeing on the final numbers. The fact was that even though they were their father's top two managers, they simply disliked working with each other. The sons worked as individuals for their fathers rather than as teammates or future partners. So wouldn't it have been easier for them to have told their father about these problems? Well, they were not able to, for numerous reasons, to confess to this truth in any of the other meetings, mainly because of the fear of what such an admission might have done to their familial relationships which is really not unusual in these sorts of situations. So it wasn't until they had that pivotal mediation meeting that they felt that they were safe enough to confess that they knew that they would never enjoy working together based on the level of discomfort that they'd experienced as they tackled the specifics of working together and trying to draft their own partnership agreement. It was probably actually a truth, Julian, that only became known to themselves in mm. that meeting. And how did the father react to this? Well, after this revelation, the father was reintroduced into the meetings and finally he was able to acknowledge that the sons had not worked in concert for years, even though they were the company's key employees. They worked closely with their father, but not much and certainly not well with each other. So it'd be interesting, what, what was the solutions for the estate planning process then? Well, in further meetings, the three explored the possibility of splitting the business into two separate companies, but cash flow modelling helped to demonstrate the infeasibility and impracticality of separating the business into two parts. And eventually the three of them decided that one of the two brothers would buy the father and the other brother out of the business over time so that a final document was developed in the mediation, um, a management and ownership transition plan, which described the buyout terms, the deferred compensation plans, the parties' roles and the timing of events. All the parties signed the non-binding document 
and then gave it to the father's estate planning lawyer who completed the drafting of the father's estate plan. So the meetings that you spoke about earlier with the lawyer beforehand were being sabotaged by an underlying unspoken reluctance on the part of the sons to admit to their father that they did not work together. I think that's correct. And, and in fact, I think in hindsight that maybe that reluctance was due to the fact that they didn't even admit that to each other or to themselves, more importantly. So this example illustrates perfectly how mediators with family business skills can work with an estate planning lawyer to ensure that the lawyer has all the input necessary to create an estate plan that will achieve the the client's tangible and intangible goals. It's this kind of team approach that enables the planning lawyer and client to handle ethical and emotional concerns about meeting with family members who have potentially conflicting interests without sacrificing the advantage of someone. So this is where a neutral third party who is serving the interests of all of the parties and not just the testators, that is the people who are making the wills, mm. um, so that all of their, everyone's perspectives and ideas can be heard. And of course it would have been a very uh, challenging situation if the father had gone ahead in secrecy and then had passed away uh, and left all that mess to be sorted out afterwards. Probably the family business would have devolved. Exactly. So any final reflections on this situation? Well, giving gifts to loved ones should be an occasion of joy and gratitude, really, and if it's not, it can backfire and actually worsen an older person's sense of integrity and connection. Um, So it makes sense to put in the extra cost and effort where the nature of the assets to be transferred justifies it. I mean, obviously, with small estates where there are no businesses involved, then you might not want to go to that extra expense. Mm. But one final reflection on this kind of pre-estate mediation um, is that carefully conducted family meetings ensure that there will be no surprises or hidden agendas after the parents die. And certainly in that example, there would have been a lot of surprises once the brothers finally came to realise that they actually couldn't work in partnership together. Mm. And so it's this kind of pre-estate planning mediation that can uh, reduce the likelihood of conflict after death um, by obviating the need of the adult children to deal with these complicated and emotionally charged estate matters at a time when they are usually emotionally at their most vulnerable. Yeah, it's always a good idea to, to solve problems before they occur, isn't it? That's right. Fantastic. Well, thanks very much for your time, Sonia. And, uh, we'll chat with you again another time. Okay, terrific. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Julian. Bye-bye. Sonia Anderson there from Tranter Lawyers, helping us to understand uh, the importance of mediation during the estate planning. Just don't uh, do everything in secrecy. And you're listening to 2NURFM 103.7, and this is Business, the Law and You. Time to pop over to Brett Gleeson at the Lake Macquarie Business Centre and have a chat with him. Good afternoon, Brett. Hi, Julian. Thank you once again for joining us. We're, we're looking at the uh, the stages of a business at the, at the, the moment today. Um, obviously, businesses go through all sorts of changes, don't they? They do, and there, there are sort of four distinct phases. You know, there's the, the pre-existence phase where people are you know, working out what business they want to be in and doing their research and then getting their business planned, as we've talked about uh, last week. We're sort of starting up and then... Once they get set up, there's a phase there for normally a year or two where they're sort of getting their feet on the ground and then they should start to run in the third phase and actually go through a growth stage and that could last for you know, two to five years depending on the industry, the nature of the business and how well it's being run. And then they would move into the maturity stage and that can last uh, for for quite a while. 
but it's also probably in some ways the most dangerous stage because once they get to maturity, they've then got to make a decision about whether they're actually going to stay the same and see what happens or actually uh, reinvent themselves at some point in time. And uh, you know, if, they, if they don't reinvent themselves, there's a very good chance that they'll be left behind uh, and uh, and die a natural death, so to speak. And, and we were talking off air about the the phases that the butchers have gone through as an example. It is. It's interesting that the, the, the butcher shops and the meat industry over the last... Um, yeah, so 10 or 15 years are, are, have gone through um, some challenging times and uh, the, yeah, we traditionally we've known in the, right through until the early 1990s about the butcher shops being mainly a, a family-run traditional business. Uh, sometimes they existed for several generations and uh, uh, father or daughter you know, followed the son, uh, sorry, the, the, followed the father into the, into the business and several members of the same family sometimes were working in the business and uh, some of us may remember, be old enough to remember the sawdust on the floor and wooden chopping blocks mm. and uh, wall-to-wall meat cleavers of every shape and size, well, that doesn't happen anymore. And uh, over the last 10 years or so, uh, they've gone through a through a phase, and that was, I guess, uh, early 1990s. Uh, over a 1,000 butcher shops in Australia closed in a couple of years, and uh, that was 20% of the, uh, the number of butchers in, uh, in Australia-wide. So um, that was a significant part of the, mm. that industry that actually uh, didn't... Uh, didn't survive the changes and some of those changes you know um there was no one single single factor but a, a range of factors and and things like the emergence of shopping centers uh, had a had an impact and changing customer expectations and changing lifestyles people became busier uh both generally uh two people in the household were were working so less time certainly increased regulation with the uh, safe foods uh act came in uh, and that certainly had a an impact where you couldn't use sawdust on your floor anymore, and you couldn't use wooden chopping blocks, mm. and uh, uh, so the, the, the changing nature of, of business and business practices uh, um, also had a you know, had a um, a big impact on on, on butcher shops, and, and we don't see butcher shops very many these days that are that were like they were you know, sort of ten years or so ago. They've, they've been either forced to change, or in fact, uh, some of the older ones that uh, where they weren't followed by other members of the, of the Following generations actually just closed, and they were part of that uh, that thousand that actually uh, closed up shop. So, how did they reinvent themselves? Well, a lot of them were actually um, you know, looking at, at the changing nature, and for for some of them, they now open uh, much longer. Certainly, the uh, ones in the shopping centres are required to be there seven days a week and mm. uh, a lot longer hours. And I guess a small traditional small business uh, would find that very hard to uh, to cope with longer hours. You, you know, mm. maybe not much more income, but much more cost involved, of course. And the ones that, that survived looked at their product um, and they um, value added their product. Uh, you can now buy ready-made meals. You just take them home and you know, whack them in a fry pan, and uh, you know, you've got a meal there. Um, they look at uh, value adding in terms of condiments and sauces, and uh, sometimes mm. they made they made their own. Uh, some of them actually have been running cooking classes uh, and you know, saying, well, if you, if you, you know, spend a lot of money on, on meat these days, then you want to make sure that you get the best out of it. And often a, a good piece of meat can be spoilt by um, a bad cook. Uh, so, um, yeah, they're running cooking classes. And a lot of them actually have innovated. Um, they've gone into uh, some of the areas that are known to be food areas. Uh, and rather than just having a butcher shop, they've actually put a cafe next to it or okay. a restaurant next to it. So you can actually go in... Mm. Pick your piece of steak, and then there will be a qualified chef there who actually will um, 
we'll cook it for you on the spot. So mm. it's uh, uh, a lot of things are happening so along, along those lines, and uh, you know, they're uh, creating an experience rather than just going in and buying you know, a few sausages and, and some uh, some steak. You actually uh, have created an experience uh, along with it, and that's part of you know the re uh, the reinvention you might say of, of butcher shops. So other businesses can learn from this example, can't they? The best way to learn is by someone else. From someone else's not, not so much mistakes, I guess, but changing circumstances. And the, the the most important thing is is mindset. You know, if you look at the the, the butcher shops that uh, didn't change, then they got stuck in that maturity phase and actually didn't reinvent themselves. So, having a mindset that is looking for the changes in in what's happening in the business sector and in the community generally um, that's the most important thing if you're not mm. open if your eyes aren't open to what's changing then you actually won't see it happening mm. and uh, and then you know, try and try and look at uh, look at that and uh, it's a, a case of yeah we talked before about uh, the business owners that have they have to spend some time working on, on the business, business yeah. on the business and not in the business so mm. uh, rather than being at the sh- uh, the, uh, the the floor uh, the, of the the shop uh, actually be on the roof and looking mm. down inside the business and mm. actually spend a bit of time here. It's only a couple of hours per week. It's a really essential thing to do. And, and then, you know, at the same time, while you're trying to, to reinvent yourself, you need to keep those basic values there. You know, people still look for good customer service. They mm. still look for value for money. They still look for a quality product. Mm. So, but it's the way you deliver that. Uh, and so um, that's, that's the lessons the lessons. For, for other businesses, because uh, the same thing will happen in other, has happened in other businesses as well. Uh, the butcher shops are just one example of that, and uh, mm. uh, a good business owner will be there ready to look for new opportunities. And uh, an important thing is to do something different. Don't mm. be like everybody else and uh, you know, you know, sort of their way to get noticed, Julian, as you know, is to stand out <laughs> in the, stand out have in the, the crowd. crowd. <laughs> have a penguin. Exactly, have a penguin, that's right, yeah. So, uh-huh. uh, but, uh, yeah, so if you stand out from the crowd, do something different. And, uh, yeah, you need a bit of courage as well. Being in business takes a bit of courage. So, um, and, uh, you know, you can always go back uh, or change direction if it hasn't worked for you. Great. Well, thanks for your time, uh, Brett. We'll, uh, we'll have a chat about business success generally next week. Yeah, we'll do that for sure, Julian. Thank you. Bye-bye. Great. Thanks. Brett Gleeson there from the Lake Macquarie Business Centre, helping us to understand those cycles that we go through and uh, how important it is to constantly keep adapting your business. Just got time for a quick business tip before we go. Protect your good idea. The best ideas can still die when naysayers raise concerns, even if the concerns are meritless. Instead of trying to dodge unavoidable attacks, learn to expect the common types you'll face and how to counter them simply and convincingly. And here's three ways. First of all, death by delay. Adversaries may try to put off the discussion, ask for additional information, or otherwise delay a decision on your idea, thereby slowing momentum. Keep your audience focused on making a decision. Second point is confusion. Detractors often present distracting information or try to link your idea to several others in attempt to confound people. Be clear about what your idea is and what it isn't. And finally, fear-mongering. Nothing kills an idea faster than irrational anxieties. Know what fears your challenges might stir up and be prepared to allay them. That's taken from a little tip buy-in by John Cotter and Lorna Whitehead. And we can have another quick one. Know the three requirements of change efforts. Setting new direction, changing behaviour or transforming a culture is never easy. Before you start down the road of change, know three of the things you'll need on your journey. 
The first one is a clear destination. Many change programs fail because not everyone understands where they're headed. Be clear up front with everyone who needs to change about what the end point looks like. Secondly, a starting point. Big goals are intimidating and sometimes paralysing. Get started by taking small steps towards your goal and momentum will build. And finally, persistence. Most change efforts look like they will fail at some point, usually in the middle. Don't give up prematurely. Find a way around obstacles, make necessary alterations and keep going. And that's a management tip taken from Seven Troops about Truths About Change to Lead by and Live by by Rose Beth Cantor. Well, thank you for being with me for the last half hour. I hope you enjoyed the program. We've looked at uh, mediation in estate planning, a new idea there of uh, resolving some of those issues that could come up before we put the uh, estate plan together. We've also spoken about those various stages of business cycle. Next week, we'll have a look at business success with Brett Gleeson from the Lake Macquarie Business Centre and we'll examine those hazards and risks in the workplace with David Sheeran from WorkCover. And, of course, we'll have a few more of those business tips ideas. I'd love your company at the same time for business, the law and you. Until then, have a safe and prosperous week and remember, focus your passion on your vision.